because then they want to wield the power of the institution in order to have an impact on society or to message people about things that are nothing to do with it. So, for instance, you know, to the extent that collectivized instincts encouraged footballers to take the knee before games in the Premier League. Well, you know, maybe some footballers felt that Black Lives Matter was a, was a viable and valid and, and a message that needed to get out there. But maybe some of them didn't. And maybe some of the fans did. And maybe some of the fans didn't. But as soon as they're having it shoved down their throats, that creates a problem if you've gone to see a football match and instead it's been co-opted by a political organisation of any kind, you know. And um, again, I don't think it's been a coordinated effort. And yet, you know, the incontrovertibly has happened. You see it again and again and again. Thank you so, so much for joining me. I know you're really busy and you have a really busy touring schedule. Are you, are you touring now? I've been touring the same show, would you believe, since August of 2019 with obvious uh, interruptions and postponements. And then second postponement, some of my shows were postponed due to COVID, then due to the second lockdown, and then postponed a third time due to the royal funeral. <laughs> People oh of Winchester had to really keep track of their emails, but they got there in the end. Yeah, I know the feeling. I was like, I almost had my own show. I was supposed to do this big tour and then lockdown came and I was like, yeah, this is my moment. You know, I'm, I'm really yeah. going to take off. And then no, all, it was not meant to be. <laughs> it's still meant to be. You're very young. You have uh, the whole world is opening up constantly. I think there is a temptation genuinely in, in the media world to assume that you have missed the boat again and again and again. When I think of all the boats I think I've missed, you know, whether it be podcasting or having a YouTube channel or creating a like a, an online avatar of some kind but actually these things just constantly unfold and there are always new opportunities to jump on and get to work yeah i feel like media is really like that there's like there's always these fits and starts you get so hopeful you know the very first thing i did when i first moved to the uk was a show with um jack whitehall and richard ayuadi and i didn't oh. even know who these people were and no. <laughs> it wasn't until i was literally on the stage and they were introducing everyone and they were like eminent scholar blah 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 comedian who's been and i was like oh my god and then it got to me and was like here's Ashley. he's on twitter jack whitehall blew up very quickly i mean i i remember not very long ago phoning him up uh when we were on a bill together in a comedy club you know and just saying would you mind if you went on in the middle because i i would i'm gonna get there late and i'd like to close and he was like i think they're kind of expecting me to close simon you know I had genuinely not registered that he was like orders of magnitude bigger than me. And I was like filling in for him. I was like, okay, fine, Jack, you know, and you get to the auditorium. There's like screaming girls fainting outside the stage door, but uh, including. But one of the things about Jack Whitehall was, um, and I'm going to reveal my incredible stupidity here. And I hope that you'll be kind to me, but uh, I, this was like 10 years ago. I was, I was really young. I was fresh out of my PhD. And, uh, I was like, oh, you know, these are comedians. They're so funny, like, when the camera's rolling. And I was actually shocked when the camera stopped rolling, how incredibly serious they were. And it was just like, you right. know, straight out of nowhere. Do you ever get that kind of, where people kind of typecast or expect you to be really silly and don't take you seriously because of that? Well, I think every different comedian that I know has a different degree of on-off switch, you know, and there are some who remain on the whole time or at least have always been on in my presence, and that can be exhausting. And, and actually, mm. <clears throat> I think it is more natural, to be honest, to, be, um, to just dial it down a bit when the cameras stop rolling and the microphones are off. 
I have a tendency, if anything, and I, I am sort of aware of it, and I, if I, you know, objectively, I don't know that it's that attractive, but I have a tendency to try and demonstrate on camera, on microphone, like I am now, um, that I'm sort of thoughtful and, um, I guess, kind of multi-talented or polymathic or whatever. I, I, I would much rather people thought of me as a kind of Brian Eno or a Clive James, you know, one of these people who can work in different modes and at different levels rather than a comedian. Um, but of course, that's not why they're booking you as a rule. <laughs> you know, you have generally been booked in order to make people laugh. So you have to kind of play that game a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a, um, I think there's a, a, a general understanding now with social media and so on that uh, I think that was something there was a bit of a rude awakening about 10, 15 years ago when Twitter first started that um, the number of comedians who were on there and their fans all signed up. And some of them, of course, just used it, uh, a platform for advertising gig schedules. But some of them went straight into social justice mode. You know, Graham Linehan, who, of course, has since been on a very much longer and more bumpy journey on that front, mm -hmm. um, which is I find really interesting in itself. But he was like quite a sort of left liberal scold for quite a while. Almost all of his... Twitter output was about um, internet, um, you know, control. Who was who was going to have? Uh, there, there was a lot of talk. I can't remember exactly what the terms that we used, but in about 2010, 2011, there was there, there were rumblings that the internet was going to become a, a much more regulated neighbourhood, you know, and and the, that was all his preoccupation. And anyone who went on there thinking, oh, this is the fellow off father Ted, this will be a crack, you know, they were like very quickly awakened to uh, the reality of it. Hardly any comedians that I know are um, the life and soul of the party, to be truthful. I think a lot of comedians, and I would include myself, become comedians because they like being funny, they like to be appreciated and understood to be funny, they like getting laughs, and they've actually been denied that in the general kind of run of play in social gatherings and so on, because there are other people <laughs> who are funnier, you know, so they kind of go, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a stage, lighting rig, microphone, amplifier, I'm going to have everyone sat down in the dark, and then they will have to listen to me, you know. Yeah, I feel like that's how I became an academic. Like I wanted to be like a public speaker. I wanted to be a public intellectual. I just wanted people to like be in an audience and be in awe because my whole life I talk too much. That's my thing. I just I just talk endlessly. And so I was like, well, I better study to have something to talk about and I better go become a lecturer so people are forced to sit and listen. <laughs> it's perfectly reasonable. I think as long as you recognize it, you know, it's a very human need, isn't it? And we've all realized that. That's what social media has taught us, right? Is that everybody wants to talk, you know? <laughs> Did you know Milan Kundera, Czech novelist from like the 80s, I guess it was at his height. Well, I say Czech, he was Czech and living in France, I think, but wrote about sort of, um, yeah, the oppressive regimes and so on in Eastern Europe. There's a great book, I think it's in the book of Laughter and Forgetting when he talks about all the emus that rush up to see him in the zoo and just like talk at him through the chain link fence and how he's like, he's just suddenly realizes this is what everyone's like. You know, they're just yakking all the time and nobody's listening, you know, and, and emus like are like literal that. Twitter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, getting a PhD, getting a, a show in Edinburgh, all these things are just ways, they're like flexing, aren't they? You know, it's sexual signaling, according to Jeffrey Miller. I think there's probably some truth to it. It's funny because I was just reading this sort of exchange between people the other day and they were, they were it was about catcalling or something stupid. And this this one of the commentators was like, 
oh, well, you know, men just find it so hard to imagine that women don't need external validation for who they are. And I was like, what bullshit? Because yeah, of course you need external validation for who you are. By virtue yeah. of being a human, you don't walk out of the womb like extolling the virtues of the free market or whatever. You <laughs> like you are, you know, more or less a blank slate and you grow into who you are as a basis of interacting with other people, seeing how other people respond to you and changing and adapting as a result of that. Especially when it comes to like sexual desire. Like, I'm sorry, I, I need to know. <laughs> I need to get some feedback here. How is this Otherwise, playing? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely agree with you. And not that everything is, is is sexual signaling, but almost everything that isn't simply fulfilling a basic biological need, there's an, an element of that, isn't it? You could there's an argument that the whole of culture from you know the peacock's tail argument is is that that is what we're doing, demonstrating we have excess capacity, we have excess intelligence and energy and so on, and that we can use in order to flourish, you know. And, or at the very uh, and, least, once our needs are met, then that becomes yeah. a more of a preoccupation. <laughs> <laughs> Peterson, I think, was good on that. Um, and, and I always found it interesting to look back when I heard him saying that, you know, that a lot of what he argues for in terms of sexual and gender politics and so on is the recognition that we are all the product of an ongoing negotiation with society. We do not get to choose unilaterally who we are. We have to accept that other people have some right to uh, kind of contest that, and or at least they do if they're if they're intending to stick around, you know, they can mm. they can just leave. <laughs> you can be who yeah, you I'm are on your own, but uh, yeah. if you want to play, yeah, that's, what, that's what play is, right? That's play is an ongoing negotiation to create a fictional universe. The social construct doesn't mean it isn't real; it just means it's a, 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 a consensus. Yeah, absolutely. And I, as someone who actually uses social constructionism, I, I use social constructionism in my own work. And the thing that annoys me is that it reminds me of when I very first started teaching at a university, I was teaching social constructionism, and I had to like unteach a ton of really bad social constructionism, where it was like, everything I don't like is a social construct. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. all the things that I do like, they're natural, they're not social yeah, constructs. Yeah. <laughs> basic misunderstanding is what you get in the cultural sphere now where it's like oh well all of these things are social constructs but yeah. my thing isn't you know? <laughs> Douglas Murray was good on that in the madness of crowds talking about the shifting concept we have of uh, gender and sexual orientation and obviously as a gay man as well as a right-leaning academic he was in an unusual situation in terms of being able to to discuss that you know, to having a pass, I guess, to what might have appeared otherwise problematic. But I found it very interesting how he's saying, like, at certain points politically, it is more beneficial, it's more helpful to a certain movement, to an activism or whatever, to present personality or behavioral traits as baked in, hardwired, and at other times to present them as social constructs or moot or adaptable. It helps to explain... Um, your determination to you know enjoy equal rights or whatever and and it's very interesting how that is how that is in itself a fluid thing the idea of social construction is in itself almost a social construct or at least what that means what that term means but then again i don't think we're doing badly i do think you know this this is it, it is a kind of it's a sociological or whatever judith butler and all the rest of it but it is a kind of it is something that just used to exist in academia until not long ago and now a lot of ordinary people and my own daughter and stuff use those terms even if they don't use them exactly correctly the fact that they're aware that these things are up for debate 
or that there is a language for discussing them. I think there's probably, you know, progress of a kind. Yeah, absolutely. I think the issue is that people are still searching for some firm grounding for truth um, that isn't in human judgment. Yeah. Right? Like everything's a social construct, right? But that, what does that mean? It's mm. basically a stupid thing to say because yes, but we have to decide, we have to make a judgment what con on, on what constructs we're going to live our lives by. Yeah. We have to make a we have to decide what constructs make it easier to live together. And that requires consensus, some bargaining, negotiation. Ideally, in a democratic society, that's what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And even then, I mean, not just in a democratic society, but actually, in a way, even in under a monarchy or anything, you know, there are certain rules which have been demonstrated to lead to desirable outcomes. And it isn't always immediately obvious which those rules will be, you know, when you're mm -hmm. when you're sitting around smoking reefers around a bonfire on the beach, <laughs> reconstructing society along more egalitarian lines. It's not immediately obvious what some of the unexpected outcomes might be. So to an extent, I think civilization at this point, although it has all kinds of things that I think are, are wrong with it, and I do have a kind of gnawing sense of decline, <laughs> but that may just be, you know, my age. But I do think it's also like a, a pebble that's been worn smooth by a couple of thousand years of ocean activity, you know, and you have to recognize that it probably reflects, to some extent, a consensus that has been found operable, you know, even though there are bad actors and so on who might have more interest in maintaining the status quo than others. Can you think of an example of that? You, you seem to have something in mind. <laughs> well, I mean, again, without, I don't want to sound like too much of a fanboy, but we seem to be in his territory. Peterson would say the patriarchy is something you have to keep an eye on. You know, we, we live on a, on a diluted version of the patriarchy by comparison with um, prehistoric pastoralism, you know, where, where there is literally a, a father figure at the head of the clan and, uh, and he will meet out horrific uh, punishments on, on a, you know, along a, a, a very um, autocratic lines. Nowadays, the, the rule of the father in most families in the UK, I think, is, is, is heavily hemmed in by uh, law and convention, you know, and actually, I think I would probably more easily point at what really amount to matriarchal family units that I know in Brighton. I mean, I don't mean like, uh, because I'm saying Brighton, immediately people have pictures of, but like, this is just where I live, you know. I think there are more households in Brighton that I know of where, where the, the woman has uh, an unequal level of control over the financial outlays, the, you know, the values that the family observe and live by and so on. But the patriarchy is a system that, is capable of of uh, spinning out of control if it isn't constantly checked. Yeah. So what starts out as a well, this kind of works because um, you know men need to take responsibility for their offspring. Women will have them and will naturally like be bonded to them and be identified with them. And we need to have laws and conventions that make sure the fathers stick around as well. So there are certain kind of arguments for why those things work, but they can escalate and become dysfunctional. I mean, I think we have a pretty good system as that as they go for doing that, I, I guess, in the West. But um, sometimes you feel, as I say, I think it is probably a thing with age to some extent because you get more nervous as you find yourself feeling like, like I've got less time to fix this if it goes wrong. <laughs> and maybe less energy as well and, and less capacity to build things up again from scratch, you know. That's that interesting line in Kipling's poem, If, you know, there's a number, although it's a, a terrible old tea towel of a poem, there are a number of quite interesting propositions in there. And I think one of them about 
you know if you can heap your winnings or heap heap your 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 you know your wealth on onto a single toss of the dice and and lose and toss of the coin and lose and 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 start again from scratch then you'll be a man my son well that's fine when he's talking to his 18 year old son that's a lot harder to um stomach in your late 50s I think there's a tendency to to see the way that the certain patterns and the way that people live and to assume that these are de facto problematic, right? So if if people have you know patriarchal kind of relations in their own families, this is like they're duped by the patriarchy, right? And yeah. there's less of an understanding that these things can work in particular contexts, you know, and and that they can be abandoned when they don't work, you know, just to give my uh, a little anecdote, but, you know, I, I married a very stereotypically masculine man. He's a ex-footballer. He's, you know, we have a very stereotypical family where he is definitely in charge <laughs> right. because I am an idiot and I will get lost in a cardboard box. I have, I have a mind that's only for books. <laughs> this person, believe yeah. me. And I'm fine with that. But when it, you know, when it didn't work, uh, you know, when I was the main breadwinner, he took care of our of our babies. You know, he even like wore one of those baby Bjorns and walked around quite proudly. Right. <laughs> and and people, you know, when I talk about this, like that, my husband sees the family as something that's really important, as something worth sacrificing for, and and just a really important kind of institution. I get a lot of flack, like, oh, you married a trad dad. You know, <laughs> like the vast majority of humanity lives their life on the basis of some traditions they give us some kind of guidance and yeah. you know when they work uh, they work and when they don't people have a capacity of their own accord to abandon them but there's this sense that without some kind of outside power to come in and tell people how to live they're going to get things wrong and the fact that they get things wrong is actually the root of a huge range of social problems so a big range of policy becomes you know fixing people and fixing their allegedly um maladapted arrangements of just the mindless going through tradition do you see that or am i does that characterization no, kind of I, represent yeah i think it's absolutely true i mean it's not quite the same but it's kind of similar to the concept of anchoring you know which is like a sales technique and so on where if you say to somebody um how much do you think this car is worth they might have no idea but if you say it's worth it it normally goes for 20,000 but i'm selling it today for 15,000 they immediately think they've got a bargain you know people have a look for an anchor and the same thing happens in um yeah in morality and tradition and and the way social order is organized i mean just as a very obvious example if 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 human most of human history seems to have been organized around certain repeated time periods. And some of those are imposed by nature. For instance, we obviously have the seasons, you know, and you have to, in a farming culture, you have to respect the seasons or you will come off the worst. The seasons won't get hurt, you know, but the, <laughs> but the week, the working week is a pretty much a, a classic social construct or, a, you know, originally a religious construct, possibly associated with certain um, superstitions, certain kind of, beliefs that the certain numbers were, 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 were mystical and were given by God and so on. But you could say like five day working week, one day of, of sport and, sh and shopping, and then one day of, of rest, reflection, and ideally prayer or meditation or, you know, uh, peace and tranquility in the home. That seems like a fairly workable solution to how to organize our time. But we could take another look at that now, perhaps with the amount of like sedentary work we do or the extent to which machines have taken off, you know, a lot of the burden or whatever, we could extend the week or we could shorten it, but we'd need to start with the week and say, 
maybe we could do a seven-day working week and then have a three-day weekend. Would that work? I don't know. There's all kinds of things you could do, but you can't just start from scratch. You know, you need to have some recognition of what has worked in the past and, and maybe what has um, grated on people. Yeah. And I do yeah. think it's interesting, you know, again, you say, yeah, you, you're, you, you recognize you have a traditional masculine, feminine um, hierarchy in the, in the household. The confidence that you have in that and that you're both happy with it is probably what allows your husband to then say, however, since you're earning money and I'm not, I will stay home and look at the kids because I don't feel emasculated by it. I feel that we understand one another on, on that level and in those regards. And interestingly, I don't know whether you meant it like as it was the the kind of most important part of your uh, of how your brain architecture is organized. But I'm like you, I, I, I'm very verbal and easily lost geographically. I am absolutely <laughs> worst, I'm not a space rotator. And um, and my wife is is a lot better on that front. You know, she does have more. She has more instinctive diary organization. You know, she remembers mm -hmm. what we're doing next Thursday, whereas I absolutely have to check, you know, and, um, and consequently, she's kind of in charge. <laughs> You know, that yeah, does, you know, that just flows pretty naturally into, you know, who's going to take control of this stuff. Yeah. And my husband has way more maternal instinct than I do. He's like a duck to water. I was like, oh, children, babies. Oh, God, there's a lot of bodily fluid to deal with. And, and he was just like, he didn't care. He could change a diaper and go eat a burger. He was like, yeah. <laughs> he was not at all bothered. Right. So, you know, and, and people are, I think, for the most part, quite dynamic. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, tradition can't become, as you say, like a a box that can hold people back sometimes like there is yeah. a certain danger to wanting this kind of rules or motions to go through because yeah. especially because our societies have less of that and therefore yeah. there's less certainty about who you are and so you do have to make those judgments about how i'm going to be who i'm going to be how i'm going to live in the world and i think in the face of that kind of radical freedom that we sometimes have there is this desire to kind of retreat back and say, no, 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 there isn't actually any choice here. Everything is determined. I'm determined by something intrinsic to myself and who I am. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's not really any choice or like, no, no, this is the way of the world. This is the law of the land. It's always been this way. And therefore, this is how it's always going to be. So it's a tough kind of tightrope that we have to walk in modernity, I think. And especially if you do want to make those changes, you do have to recognize that you you know, for everything you add, you have to take something off or vice versa, you know, otherwise it won't be great for you. You know, I think, I think my wife is certainly not alone. And maybe this reflects badly on me for like failing to pick up, you know, what, what she was casting off, but I don't think she's alone in feeling, you know, we have a, an 18 and a 15 year old now and she's worked pretty much throughout their schooling, but has also been an absolutely committed mum. I mean, she's been, it, 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 you know, really like, hands-on you know and um uh, even you know i would say probably a little too hands-on has not allowed them to like fail often enough you know to toughen up possibly but that'll come at some point but as a result you know it's a kind of burnout you know that the idea that you you know that you can have it all that you can have a career and you can be you can fulfill all the functions that a mother traditionally has is going to is going to be really hard you know and it's not simply a question as i say i give myself a little bit of a pass because it's not simply a question of going fine i will empty the dishwasher i will do the cooking i will make the beds it's there, there's it's more the emotional input that you're you know you have two things to which you are absolutely committed your career your clients she works in the service sector you know she she has uh, clients who think nothing of calling her or texting her at 11 o'clock on a friday night you know to check that that interview has been lined up for the following day on radio 4 or whatever 
And and also she wants to be there with her kids, you know, or if one of them has a nightmare in the middle of the night, even now, or, you know, or sends a WhatsApp from, from Thailand to say, oh, my God, I've eaten something, I feel wretched, you know, and it's like, you've got to be everything. And, and it's not simply a question of, it's not about muscle energy, it's about how much emotional um, uh, fuel you have, you know, and, and that is hard, you know. So if you break with the tradition of saying there's a, there is a breadwinner in every household and there's a homemaker, if you think I'm going to be a breadwinner too, that you have to understand and, and embrace yourself, I think, certainly for um, the, the strain. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel this. But the, the difference, too, is that the expectations that are placed on parents have, have risen up enormously. Yeah. And I think this is part of that kind of determinism that I was talking about, where people will say, well, it's not me. I'm not really in control of this. It's something that my parents did, right? We have this kind of childhood determinism, parental mm. determinism, where we're encouraged to construct the narrative of our lives that goes back to some some seemingly innocuous event in our childhoods, And then this becomes the narrative that explains everything about who we are. And then yeah. as a parent, you feel that, right? Like I'm gonna say something wrong and I'm gonna mess my kid up and I'm not gonna be there. I'm not gonna, you know, you have to be everything. But at the same yeah. time, I also have to be, as being an intensive mother, an intensive parent, I also have to be an intensive worker. So I have to do these things hundred percent. And then anytime anything goes wrong, it's like, oh, where were the parents? Where, you know, the parents yeah, yeah. are the root of all the people. You know, and this makes you quite anxious. And so you wind up playing two roles that it's not just that you have a problem with these two roles, it's that the expectations that are um, associated with both of these roles have also increased massively. And I think that's something that people don't understand. We have like a, a culture of like parent bashing. Where it's like yeah. everyone talks about hate, right? Oh, there's too much hatred in society, but it's perfectly acceptable to hate on parents. That's fine. It, it it is seems to be human nature to expect that there will be somebody somewhere to blame, you know. And so, yeah, absolutely. Essentially, by by trying to exonerate individuals for their for their failures and their deviations from the true path, we don't just kind of go, oh well, that's just the way things are. <laughs> we look around for somebody else to blame, and then of course you will say, well, maybe the parents failed because they were failed in turn, you know. And this is Larkin's poem about it, isn't it? But um, my view. Uh, has changed over the course of my parenthood, partly from direct experiential um, analysis, like just like observing what is happening in front of my eyes, but also the reading that I've done, which is maybe I've read and chosen to reinforce my suspicions, which is that a lot of this stuff is baked into kids. And actually, the best way to parent is is to give yourself a break as often as possible, not take responsibility for like every outcome good or bad you know to some extent if your kids do great at school that wasn't really your credit either you know that's just you were lucky that kid was great because if the next one comes along and fails that doesn't mean you did well for the first one and, and failed for the second one that's just you know to some extent it's not even predictably heritable it's not like you you should you could pick somebody and have your genes mapped up on a chart and just go bup, 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 that's you know that's who we're going to have although I think that happens to a greater extent than most people are really comfortable with acknowledging, but it's absolutely not watertight. But, you know, there is... I read a book recently called Innate, which explained it the best I've, I've encountered it yet, just a sort of random element to which even two people with great genes can get together and produce a monster, or vice versa, you know. Uh, Carl Friedrich Gauss, I think that's his full name, The uh, some would say the greatest mathematician since Archimedes, you know, was born to a literally illiterate peasant family. You know, it was it was almost sheer luck that he was kind of hooked out of the the, the, the mud, you know, of 17th century Germany or whatever, and, and able to get into university and demonstrate what he had. So it's not like this is like a direct, you know, I'm not talking a eugenics thing. It's just simply once it happens, 
you know, there's there's a, a limit, quite a significant limit to how much good or ill you can do for your children in the long term. Much better to just enjoy parenting. Parenting can be fun. You can have games. You can teach them tricks. You can play tricks on them and then they can play tricks on you. And, you, you know, you make a mess at dinner time and all that stuff. That's all great. Don't go to bed every night thinking, oh, my God, I am screwing them up so badly they're going to end up insane and it's going to be my fault you know that doesn't help anyone and it just isn't true yeah and that's i think the the problem with this kind of parental determinism and all the brain science and oh no i've got i just what was it i was with oliver james i watched like yeah. a 10 year old interview recently and he's like i've got 30 studies i got 30 neuroscientists <laughs> what studies have you got name one and it was like yeah. Oh my God, that's not what family is about. It's not like when you transform family into a series of key performance indicators, which anyway yeah. is totally stupid because it's not like you're going to solve all social problems by like going in and like making employability a key performance indicator of a family. <laughs> you know, it, it it sucks the joy out of that relationship and it makes totally, it something yeah. that is drudgery and horrible. Uh, and then we wonder why, like, so many parents express a certain amount of unhappiness with their role. And yeah, they go, oh, yeah. well, I guess you can be a parent then. No, maybe we should, like, grow up and stop blaming parents for everything. I, I mean, the big problem we all know we're facing across the West, not just in this country, is low levels of fertility. And, uh, and, and I suppose that it does correlate to a large extent with women going out to work and wanting to have careers and leaving it later. But I think if more women realize that they can just do a bad job and it's still fine. You know what I mean? It's like you don't have to be perfect in everything, you know, and um, and actually a lot of kids will grow up healthier and happier if they are given a few opportunities to, you know, a little bit of, of extra space to, to fail in. Not saying they should be wandering the streets until seven o'clock every night, you know, waiting to be let in. But there is a... Honestly, I have very little, like people are talking about like, oh, those parents these days don't play with their children on the swing sets or whatever. And it's like, what the hell are parents doing on, on the play things? Like sit back and enjoy your book and just, you know, make sure, you know, don't hit them with a frying pan, don't lock them in a closet, but otherwise probably yeah. be fine. I have very few memories of my parents when I was growing up and thank God for that. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, my main memory is of coming back late than I was supposed to briefly getting, you know, scolded for, for, for having made her worry, you know, and my mum was, she was perfectly capable, like all other mums were, of reading avidly in the local paper about which escaped lunatic was most likely to abduct me, you know, from the woods. But, you know, touch wood, so far it didn't happen. And I wasn't even a particular, I mean, as I said, I have very poor, you know, uh, visual spatial <laughs> cognitive abilities. I could quite easily get lost in the wood, you know, that could have happened, but... I, I think it's um, I think it's a great shame. I think we have become slightly house cats, you know, and we are a little bit like, uh, you know, afraid of our own shadow. I've seen various diagrams. I don't know how well referenced they are, but they ring true to me of like, you know, every generation has this shrinking radius. It's almost like like Russia and its spheres of influence. You know, they used to have an empire and now they're not even allowed to police their own borders. And there is that kind of sense in an eight-year-old boy in the 1930s could have been gone you know, for, for hours at a time, no parent would know where they were. They may be wandering through the yeah country lanes, but also equally, yeah, in, in town, you know, and would know their way around and would hook up with other gangs or even get into scraps or whatever and come home with a black eye and barely even register on the parents, you know, consciousness. And now eight-year-old boys are lucky, I think it's fair to say, if they're allowed out the front door on their own at all. 
know. Yeah, and of course people will again blame parents for that and talk about helicopter parenting, but yeah. like for years and years, it's to be a good parent was to be aware of any and all risk yeah, and to protect yeah. your children from any and all risk. And and Jenny Bristow calls this the double bind of parenting culture, where you're yeah. damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, right? So if you leave your children on too far, uh, too long a tether and something goes wrong, you're to blame. But if you don't, you're also to blame. It right? Psychologically, all 99% of children, parents can do is operate within quite a narrow band, you know, that is presented to them by the other parents that they know, you know, and to some extent their own childhood, but much more the peer group. So if you are if you are on a street where all the other parents do have kind of gone, you know, what the hell with this? We're going to let our kids play outside. Well, you'll probably join in. But to be the one who proactively introduces that idea is that is a big risk. Yeah, especially, as you say, if anything were to go wrong. It's risky also, especially in the United States, like legally risky in some places, it's just outlawed. Um, wow. and, and people have gone through terrible situations because they have um, tried to adopt a kind of free range parenting. It's actually the name of a movement called free range parenting. Yes, no, I, yeah, yeah. I think they're really different. I think we are much more preoccupied with our children every second of the day. Are they safe? Are they learning? Are they getting enough out of this moment, this class, this instant when we're told? supposed to be bonding, and we're really afraid for them all the time. And, and it's not just me thinking this, you know, you get to a certain age and everybody thinks, oh, the good old days, we stayed out, we had fun, we, we played outside until the streetlights came on. But the proof that things really have changed in just about one generation is that um, if you go get the DVD of uh, Sesame Street Old School, it's a two-DVD set of the early days of Sesame Street, 1969 to 1974, and you see all the stuff that we sort of associate with childhood. You see kids on trikes. You see kids playing follow the leader, and there's no, you know, accredited PhD-trained follow the leader leader. It's just kids. Um, you see them playing in a, um, a vacant lot and balancing on the beams and climbing through the... Um, pipes and stuff. And before you see any of that, what I consider normal childhood, my childhood, um, a, a warning appears on the screen at the very beginning. It's not a joke. And it says, the following is intended for adult viewing only. Adult viewing only. They cannot endorse a normal childhood the way they did back in 1970. That is now considered radical, crazy, dangerous. And you know, I have a friend who's a lawyer there. And frankly, they debated it, and, and they were afraid of getting sued. What if, God forbid, somebody goes out and plays by himself? They, they weren't willing to take that risk anymore. And what I'm interested in is, why is that considered risky? Considering the crime rate back in the 70s and 80s, when most parents today were growing up and playing outside till the streetlights came on, that crime rate was higher than it is now. So if it wasn't risky then, or wasn't crazy risky, wasn't nutty parents who didn't care at all about their kids, sending their kids out and you know never caring whether they came home or not, if they weren't terrible, if our parents weren't terrible, why are we considered terrible if we let our children ride their bike around the neighborhood or walk to school? Really, people will scream at you if you do that with your kids. So people will know you from lots of different things. Obviously, we've talked about how you're a comedian. You had a BBC show, um, um, uh, Simon Evans Goes to Market, and yep. now you're the host of Headliners. Um, yep. And I want to talk about Headliners, but I'm curious about um, the BBC show. So what made you want to bring comedy into the famously dismal science of, yeah. <laughs> of economics? Yeah, 
Uh, well, it was uh, events, of course, uh, dear boy, as the saying goes. Um, I, I was talking, I talked to the um, producer of the first series. Her name was Talusha Galani. She's at Sky now, I think. She made one series with us and then left and it was handed over. But I was talking to her at the um, Radio 4 Christmas, you know, the entertainment uh, Radio 4 party, just a, like a drinks party in the Radio Theatre in about 2009. And, of course, we just had the, the huge crash, you know, the credit crunch and the financial crisis. And, I mean, it was a fairly banal observation, but I was saying I still don't think most people understand how banks operate. I don't think most people understand how money is created. I don't think people understand fractional reserve banking. I don't think they understand anything about credit swaps or debt obligations, you know, or lateralized investments and how debt itself is exchanged. And and they don't know what went wrong and they don't know why it will or won't happen again. They are every bit as as um, subject to the whims of chance as if they had been hit by an earthquake. You know, we almost had a sort of situation like the Lisbon earthquake, which arguably was one of the great events in the in the creation of the the change of um, thinking that, you know, was the Enlightenment, Rousseau and, and Voltaire arguing over that, that, that earthquake, you know, uh, and there were still people arguing over the, the financial crisis in the same terms as if it was a sort of act of God, which had to be understood and, and read like runes. So I said, maybe comedy being one way of like making a subject less terrifying and less um, intimidating, we could make a, a Radio 4 comedy series about it. And uh, and just try and explain to people, you know, what had happened and whether it was likely to happen again and what have perhaps been some of the upsides of the deregulation that had preceded it and whether we had actually benefited to some extent as well and whether um, boom and bust is all bad. It always feels bad when you hit bust, but that's a little bit like the hangover. You know, you do forget during the hangover that you quite enjoyed the drink the night before, but when you get to a certain point in life, you kind of go... I have had some good nights, you know, and actually the hangovers <laughs> recede into, into the, uh, the, the darker place. So anyway, that was the conversation. By the time the series actually got made in 2011, I think the first one went out, we adapted it slightly and looked more at specific commodities and about how markets had changed the way we interact, you know, how markets had governed our relationship with the natural world generally, I suppose, and how we had organized the sale of land in this country, for instance, and who really owned it, how um, oil was a still un misunderstood, you know, the, the, the extent which had begun then even in 2011, the idea that we might just wean ourselves off it. And I, we did a series about not underestimating just quite what it is you're asking people to do there. And um, yeah. and and it became, I found it really fascinating. And we, so we did just four episodes and I had a great uh, sidekick, Tim Harford, who is a, a, continues to be a, a, a bit of a star on Radio 4, who talks about statistics a lot and how people misunderstand statistics as well. Oh, and how they, how they are, yeah, and how they are um, abused, you know, by government and so on. And um, and it, it became a. I think we made six series in the end, um, and it was it, it was a very interesting way of looking at the world through that particular lens. Economics is not that different, actually, from stand-up comedy, insofar as, or at least you can take it from that view, it is a study of human behaviour and often of behaviour which can strike you if you take a step back as being a bit odd. You know, mm -hmm. um, and and certainly quirky or or um, not irrational necessarily, but it's not always obvious what the what the rationality is. 
And um, yeah, so it became great. But the one thing we never did discuss on the show, of course, was the credit crunch and the financial crisis. Because by the time we actually got to make it, you know, by the time it had been commissioned, that felt like it was yesterday's news of it. So the outlook on the show was more or less, well, God, what does this mean today? But it was kind of right wing, was it not? In the sense that you thought that markets were probably the best way of organizing things. And yeah. you had these problems, but it was something that could be worked out. Is that right? Yeah. I, well, I would certainly, if, if that's your definition of right wing, I would say it was. It, it's a really interesting question. That is, I actually did make a single program called Am I Right? I think it was called about right wing, left wing divide post Brexit, what that really meant, um, whether the EU was to be considered a left wing thing, which I don't really think it was ever. So to answer your question, was the show right wing? I didn't feel it was right wing. What I felt it was possibly was explaining to people the hidden mechanics of things which they might have attributed to hostile or like evil behavior. Um, that capitalism wasn't evil. It was a, it was a means of distributing resources. And, you know, Adam Smith would say the best means, but other people might argue that a mixed economy, well, we've never really lived under pure capitalism. We've never lived with free markets, either in the 19th century, when everyone was espousing free markets. In truth, you know, America's uh, massive industrial expansion was largely due to protectionism and so on. And, there's always, you know, there's, there's always a lot of shenanigans and uh, and um, mm. backroom dealing and monopolies and uh, monosities, I think are they called. Anyway, the point is, it's always much messier when you get under the bonnet than than when you read the theory. But the, the idea that markets had an important part to play in um, allocating resources and making things run smoothly that was defended, and I suppose to some extent if you think of Radio 4 comedy as being one of those things which is perceived, I think, probably correctly to have a left liberal bias, you know, to some extent mm -hmm. it was challenging that. But it wasn't kind of challenging anything to do with, I don't know, uh, like the uh, um, feminism or, um, or gay rights or anything like that. It didn't have any kind of right-wing perspective on any of those issues. It was simply saying that, um, for instance, the futures market is not simply a question of people like extracting value from the world of commodities without them having put anything in. It's actually quite a good way of enabling miners and farmers and so on to decide what to grow and, and dig for next year. Well, the um, so you mentioned that it was a bit challenging working at the BBC, having this kind of outlook. And I know that about five years ago, you seem to defend the BBC against this idea that there was too much of a left-wing bias. And then yeah. over time, you you kind of hardened a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Less yes, I mean, that's true. Yeah, I did. I, I remember going on the trigonometry podcast. That might be one of the things you're referencing. Um, yeah, probably was about five or six years ago. And my sense was, yes, the, left, the, the BBC was a bit of a left-wing bias, but it, I didn't feel that there was any collusion or any conspiracy i didn't think it was any kind of concerted effort to it was not like a long march through the institutions kind of thing i just felt that the kind of people who ended up working at the bbc and especially as producers and, and commissioners and so on um were largely drawn from the humanities departments in universities which were in themselves already demonstrating quite significant left-wing bias that we all know that like if you look at the faculty in America or all British universities now, in the humanities departments, the ratio is something like 20 to 1, right, of the of the professors and so on in terms of their political persuasion. So those people are likely to emerge with, you know, those kind of sympathies. 
a couple of things did kind of rile me up and make me wonder whether maybe the BBC did need take into account a little bit more than I'd done previously. One was when I know that they were accused of never booking um, right-wing comics for like, have I got news for you and that sort of thing. And um, a person at the BBC said, and was quoted in The Guardian as saying, honestly, we would love to book any right-wing comedians, but there just aren't any. This is why... Jeff Norcott and Simon Evans are never off the telly. And I hadn't actually ever been invited to do Have I Got News For You. I'd done Mock the Week once, like in 2011, and that's finished now, so I'd done that once. I am I'm quite happy to be sort of broadly categorised as a right-wing comic, but I'm certainly not hard right, you know, I'm, I'm centre-right, but, you know, I'm capable of, uh, of taking the piss out of the Tories as well. So I think I would have been a fair game and you know as i say with six comedy shows on the radio under my own name i think my profile should have been high enough for them to think well maybe we offer simon evans ago you know and, but even then i'm not saying i had a right to appear on those shows i'm just saying that they tried to present me as somebody who had been an unwitting beneficiary of this otherwise kind mm-hmm. of you know lack of available right-wing comics and i hadn't they just had never i haven't done anything i haven't been on the telly since 2014 i think so that did kind of annoy me a bit, you know. I just thought, I'm sorry, but you are, you're, you're claiming a, a kind of, you know, my hands are tied, and they're not tied. You're refusing to use them. In terms of um, being back on the BBC, have you since then, or is it? Have you kind? Has that bridge been burned? Uh, yeah, no, I don't. I wouldn't know whether it's burned or not. I, I, I don't know even that I'm necessarily very good on the on TV. I mean, people might tell me exactly why I don't get on there. I don't know. I've done Question Time twice and the Big Questions twice. Nikki Campbell's debate thing, and then I've done um, <laughs> Celebrity Mastermind and a couple of Christmas University challenges. You know, maybe that's more my comfort zone. I don't know. I do understand to some extent. I mean, as I say, I made this whole show about it, and I've written about it as well. Part of the problem they have on the panel games is that if you've got like six panelists who are all broadly speaking aligned politically, they can banter quite productively, you know, um, and they can build up scenarios and and the jokes kind of, um, uh, they they like thread together quite nicely, you know, whereas if you have, you throw in one spanner into those works, a guy is going, well, hang on, I don't think that's fair. Well, that's, you know, it's kind of just tiresome, isn't it? Which is one of the nice things about headliners, to be honest, being on GB News, because there... I host, we have two comedians, and they're either, sometimes they're two left-wing comedians, but still, it's not like I'm not one surrounded by a pack of left-wingers, you know, uh, there's maybe two to one sometimes, two to one for right, two to one for the left, and just occasionally, there might be three right-wingers. But even then, I don't think we get out of control in terms of, you know, we don't, <laughs> we haven't had any beer hall putches or anything or so far. It's it's just the sense that you can banter with people who naturally share some of your assumptions and that makes it easier. So I do understand why it happens. But I think the BBC do have to be very careful because they are, you know, always struggling now to justify and demonstrate that, you know, their right to be publicly funded. And if they're not really representing half the population, then that becomes sub suspect. You mentioned the long march to the institutions, and there's been a lot of discussion lately that institutions have been captured by these sort of like I can test that these are left-wing ideologies. Like, I mean, there's this like race essentialism and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, that's that is a right wing, you know, the idea of like the Volk and so on. I mean, these were right wing or at least adopted famously by right wing ideologists, right? So this is ideologues. 
So this is something that I, I absolutely disavow <laughs> as yeah. a left-wing thing, as left-wing right. person myself. Anyways, people claim that these institutions have been captured. Do you think that's true? Well, it's, I mean, again, the left-wing, right-wing distinction there is interesting. And I think, and certainly, I mean, I expect you're, you're talking about, you know, the Nazis, obviously, who I, I totally accept, you know, the, the word, the fact that the, the word socialism appears in their name shouldn't be taken at face value. But what they certainly were was collectivist. And I think what mm -hmm. is a danger is in institutions is when they become captured by collectivists of any kind, because then... <laughs>